0: Uh, You're picking up a little bit into our study. We have a pattern of walking through the Scriptures. We begin in a book, and we move through that book. And so today we're at Exodus 13. We'll start at verse 17 and read through 14, 14. God taught His people about the, the Passover lamb. He taught them about the feast of unleavened bread. He taught them about the symbolism of the firstborn son, and all these signs were meant to point to Christ, and they still yet haven't left Egypt. They've begun to walk, but God here in the text we're about to read creates circumstances that in the moment will make absolutely no sense for the people of Israel, and the text is basically using this by way of instruction in larger ways to point us to the fact that God sometimes does take us to places that are something between a rock and a hard place. He does those things so that He might grow our faith and so that we might even see His glory. Let's pick up at chapter 13, verse 17, remembering that this is God's Word. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness and the lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people then the lord said to moses tell the people of israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi haheroth between migdol and the sea in front of Baal-Zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his armies, and overtook them, encamped by the sea at Pi Haheroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Here's God's Word. Let's pray. Oh Father, we pray for the ministry, the help of your Holy Spirit. For as we've read your Word, we recognize that we need the Holy Spirit to teach us from it. And so we pray that you would grant to us the ears to hear, the eyes to see what you have revealed for your people here. We pray also, Father, that you would again use a sinful crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. In the the court of King David, there was a, a worship leader whose name was Asaph, David wrote Psalm 37, and he wrote many others. Asaph wrote Psalm 73 and many others. One of them is the king. The other is a musician in the court of the king, and they very likely knew each other. And one wonders when you read those two psalms together if they didn't have conversations about this very subject themselves. Sometimes it feels like the Lord puts His people in a hard place like he allows them to to go into spots where it might be difficult. And David and Asaph write psalms that, that speak of how easy it is in those moments to misread the circumstances, how tempting it is to envy those who are wicked, those who have no relationship with God. Asaph says it like this, they're not in trouble as others are. They aren't stricken like the rest of mankind, therefore pride is the necklace that they wear then Asaph comes to this conclusion by the end of Psalm 73. He says, when my soul was embittered towards you, Lord, it's because I was insensitive. I was ignorant. And then he basically says, Lord, would you be willing to hold my hand? For it really is better to be near you than to trust in myself. David begins Psalm 37 from a different angle. He says, don't fret, When it appears that wicked prospers, instead, entrust yourself to the Lord. Just wait on him. I suspect if Psalm 37 and 73 would have been written before the Exodus, that it would have been really helpful for the Hebrew people to not only sing, but to read and understand. What do you do when God surrounds you with circumstances that make no sense at all? How do you respond when you, you can't even see a thread of possible good that can come out of the uncertainty that you face? Why does God seem to do this? And do it somewhat often, maybe. And why does it look like I am left and you are left as believers to go, Lord, why am I in this pinch? It looks like evil's about to win. David and Asaph would join their voices to say just Just wait. Draw near to God. Believe Him. The passage we just read teaches us that every circumstance you face offers the potential to build your faith. And so this morning we're going to examine the passage by looking at knowledge and faithfulness, presence and glory, and then finally Pride or fear. So we'll start with knowledge and faithfulness. In the, in the days when the book of Exodus is written and lived, there are three routes in the northern passage to escape out of Egypt. One is a, a northern route, which, which if you know your geography, it's called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. So you'd come out of Egypt and you just hug the edge of the Mediterranean. It would take you through the land of the Philistines and ultimately into the land of Canaan, the promised land which is what you and I today call Israel. So by foot, that would be a two-week journey. But of course, you do have to go through the land of the Philistines. The second route is a middle route. It could have taken them out, and then briefly across the desert, they would have arrived in the Promised Land a little bit to the east of the first route. Still a fairly brief journey. The third route is to head south. To head south is to keep you in Egypt longer. It also puts you in between a desert behind you and the Red Sea in front of you. And so a military strategist looking at the plan would say, if we want to move 2 million people, the first option is the best option every time. And yet, God possesses knowledge that human beings do not possess. Take a look at verse 17. God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines. Although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The way north is direct and quickest. And it is not only heavily guarded by Egyptian soldiers. Once they break free of those Egyptian soldiers, they will meet tribal clans of Philistines. And then they will have Canaanites to greet them with strong resistance. And yet we've seen what the Lord's done already in Egypt. Are those enemies ahead a real problem? Well, let's be really clear. God has said all along He would fight for His people. He will be the one who delivers them out of slavery, without so much as His people even raising a weapon. God is not concerned with His ability to get them into Canaan. He's concerned with their willingness to follow him and the conditions of their hearts along the way. God knows that 400 years of slavery has utterly demoralized his people. Oh, God can handle anything that they might face, but for them, the temptation to get to that place and fear and turn back would be more than any of them could bear. In fact, one year from this point, they're going to come to the edge of the promised land, and they're going to see the Canaanites, and they're going to get scared in Numbers 14, and they're going to say, let's choose another leader and go back to Egypt. God possesses knowledge they do not possess. In verse 17, you and I read what's going on in the mind of God, but you realize, don't you, they don't have that. They don't have verse 17, All they have in the moment is the sense that the path straight ahead would be the the quickest path to freedom. And God is strangely turning us to the right, south, the slowest, most roundabout way to leave. So the narrator tells you what they didn't know and what they couldn't see. I wonder if you think like I do that it would be helpful... To have verse 17 type information in your own life in your moments of uncertainty. But you don't. No one ever does. So, what does this verse teach us that we can apply to our own circumstances? Well, it tells us that God's way is the best way because God knows you better than you even know yourself. And he knows that that he does not want you to be tempted to the point of utter defeat. He knows what you can bear. He knows how long you can bear it. And the reason he doesn't give them, verse 17, but he gives it to us, is the same reason he doesn't give it to you in the very moments of your own confusion. The Lord wants to teach you and me to trust him in everything that we cannot see. When it looks like the Lord has simply sidetracked your plans, what do you do? When the most logical route for you is clear, you'd go this way, and it makes utterly no sense, but it feels like the Lord just flipped the blinker on and is exiting the interstate. Perhaps some of you are in a place like that right now. You didn't get into grad school. You didn't get the job that you so desperately wanted or should have had. The plans you've made just seem to be crumbling right before your eyes. For some of you, the car has already exited the interstate, and and you're looking back over your shoulder, and you're saying, Lord, you should have done this. You should have chosen something different for me. And now as you stare in a direction that you didn't choose and you didn't want, God's way makes no sense. Friends, the God of verse 17 is the God of knowledge over your own life. He's the one who knows how to to test and strengthen your faith with such tenderness that he will not let your faith be broken or crushed. I wonder if some of you aren't going, well, I think I'm almost to the edge. And if you are, verse 17 should be a great comfort. It's really simple to trust the Lord when circumstances make sense. It's really the summons of faith to trust the Lord when the circumstances before us make no sense. To trust the knowledge of God more than your own knowledge and more than self-certainty. This week I was pleasantly surprised to see that the Lord had given me wisdom to handle two different circumstances. I won't really be able to explain them. But let me just say this, if it sounds prideful in my telling it, it also sounded prideful in my own head. Wow, Lord, I really have wisdom here. That's encouraging. And then, of course, I start thinking about how many times I've acted foolishly, and I recognize that to have wisdom in any moment is really a bit of a rare jewel in my life. It didn't take long for me to begin to go, Lord, where did that come from? How did I get to the place of wisdom? And then the answer became embarrassingly obvious. Wisdom is a gift which is given to us by God. And the only reason that I had particular wisdom because, was because of another season, previously where I was completely faithless. When I doubted that God's knowledge was actually the best for me. And I was stubbornly sure that I was right, and he was wrong. Stubbornly sure that I knew, and God didn't know. Friends, the wisdom that you possess today has been formed by countless circumstances where at first God seemed to be in the wrong And you were absolutely sure that you were in the right, but God clearly knew something that you did not know about the world and also about you. You notice what they're carrying with them a physical reminder, not only of God's knowledge, but also of his faithfulness. Take a look at verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. It's it's one of the last things that Joseph said before he died, Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, in his kindness, God had shown Joseph that Egypt was a temporary stop, that God would be faithful to do everything that he'd said he'd do to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and eventually they would come to the promised land. The Bible says that Joseph died, resting his own faith in the faithfulness of God. And so when God does what He said He was going to do, y'all carry my bones up with you. We read Hebrews 11:22 to remind us that our own faith actually rests on the faithfulness of God. It's not blind. It's not arbitrary. If the people could see it, the the bones of Joseph going up with them was evidence of, of God's faithfulness. Even if they couldn't see how, or where, or why, God does what he promises to do. There's two lessons for us here. In your own life, God knows which way is best. And secondly, if you have the eyes to see it, God displays His unfaithfulness right before your eyes. What a kindness from a Father who tenderly cares. Every circumstance you face offers the potential to build your faith. This is a God of knowledge and faithfulness. It's also a God of presence and glory. And so the text says they moved south. And we learn how the Lord led them to a place that he will lead them and he will continue to lead them in this pattern for the next 40 years. Look at verse 21. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And what the text doesn't tell you is it didn't depart from before the people for the next 40 years. You remember the symbolism of the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3. The cloud and the fire are are signs of God's presence. We're going to see it again in chapter 16 when God gives them manna. You're going to see it at Mount Sinai in chapter 19. You're going to see it again at the tabernacle in chapter 40, the cloud and the fire. And they're meant to inspire reverence and awe, but also deep comfort. it's one thing for the Lord to call you out of bondage, whether actual slavery or slavery to your sin. It's a terrifying thing, though, when the Lord leads you in a direction that you would not have chosen and makes no sense to your eyes. But for those who are willing to grow in faith in moments like that, it's meant to be a comfort to see that leaving your past life is safe, Not because you will fully understand what is coming, but because the Lord is present with you when you go. Have you ever wished that you could see God's presence leading you in the precise ways that you should go? Perhaps it would have saved you a lot of uncertainty. It would have rescued you from 100% of the failure that you faced. Applications you never would have filled out things you never would have interviewed for, people you never would have gone out with, or projects you never would have started. And all that seems almost perfect, doesn't it? If I could just get a sign in the sky, that would really mean a lot to me. I think that longing is a good longing. I suppose it's the reason that some Christians want to make those longings absolute. God's leading me to, to ask this person out. God's leading me to pursue this job or that job. God is leading me to be the president of my fraternity or my sorority. God is leading me to leave my church and go find another one. Or the young man who said, God is leading me to find the right time to kiss my girlfriend. Or the other man who excitedly came up to me with exuberance and informed me that God was leading him to divorce his wife. Why is it that we feel so compelled to label our wants as God's leading? Perhaps it would be better not to implicate the Lord in our mistakes as if he led you to that place. The pillar is a theophany, like the burning bush, and it's a visible representation of God. And if you have come to know Christ by faith, then you have been given something far better than a pillar of fire in front of you. Now, through the Holy Spirit, that pillar dwells in you. And you've been given God's Word You've been given the indwelling guidance of the Holy Spirit, all of which makes following the Lord far less mystical and much more clear. Be content with His Spirit, because it's really far better than a sign in the sky and more certain than referring to your wants as His leading John fourteen seventeen, Jesus calls him the spirit of truth who dwells in you and be, will be with you. John sixteen thirteen, the spirit of truth who will guide you in all truth. 1 Peter 4, 4, the presence of God dwells on you by the spirit. Those who are in Christ experience God's presence through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Friends, because the spirit in you is better than a sign over you. Every circumstance you face offers the potential to build your faith. One major theme of the Exodus is that God is delivering these people for his glory. And so that pillar of cloud and fire was meant to make God's people trust even if the strategy looked crazy. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to excuse me, 14:1. It only looks like 11 if you're going blind. The Lord said to Moses in 14:1, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zaphon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now, these are places that have long ago been wiped away from the map, but the point is really clear. God's saying, why don't you go backward now and stand in front of an Egyptian fort between the desert and the sea? And it seems so Crazy that Yahweh has to tell them, I'm setting a trap, and you're the bait. Pharaoh will think he has trapped you, and you'll think that too. And he's going to pursue you to that place, and I will snare him in his pride. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and his armies. And the language is identical to chapter 7, verse 3 and 5 and 16. Everything that you're about to see in front of your eyes is for God's glory. Here's a challenge for people who are really creatures of sight. We so deeply rely on that visible sight that it is difficult to be content. It's difficult to be okay or happy or safe when I cannot see the outcome. Precisely what the Hebrew people experience on this day. And so, as a follower of Christ deep down, I know you desire for the Lord to get his own glory, to even get his own glory in your own life, but most of us have no category, no framework for God to get his glory unless it makes sense to our sight. God says, I'm going to send you down, and I'm going to ask you to sit, and I'm going to wait, and I'm going to ask you to be wedged in between the desert and the sea. Would you trust me even in that moment when it makes no sense? Sometimes God does that. He carries you into life circumstances, to a place where you feel at risk, exposed, insecure, And maybe while he tells you to wait, you feel like you're wasting away? You're languishing in that spot? Would you still be able in that place to acknowledge that your good and God's glory are bound up together? In sickness, in loss, in disappointment, in uncertainty? It's really a deep place of conviction for all of us. God, I want to see how you get your glory before I sign off on being a part of any pain. Because we're creatures of sight. The Apostle Paul says that God is teaching you to work a muscle that is completely unnatural to your flesh. Life on this earth is really made up of 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. Could it be that God makes known His presence in those seasons of waiting in circumstances that don't make sense in order simply to buoy your heart while He works for His glory? That's clearly what's happening in chapter 13 and 14. Every circumstance you face offers the potential to build your faith. Knowledge and faithfulness, presence and glory, we close with pride or fear verses 5 through 11, both Pharaoh and the Hebrews misinterpret the situation. And that is, they both wrongly attribute the events to the wrong people. The Egyptians think that they are the ones who let the people of Israel go, which leads them to a place of pride. The Hebrews think that Moses has led them out, which is what leads them to a place of fear. So back at verse 5, we're transported into the king's court, and Pharaoh and his servants suddenly pivot from wanting the Hebrews gone to what have we done? We just let go an entire free workforce. A seminary professor of mine used to say that in the ancient world, when you read of chariots, you are reading of the nuclear weapons of the day. Pharaoh summons his own personal chariot. Then he summons 600 specially equipped chariots to follow him. And then the rest of the arsenal of chariots follow them. And the narrator builds the story from verses 7 to verse 9 so that you feel what God's people felt. The rumbling of the ground. As every weapon in the Egyptian arsenal moves towards the attack of God's people. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, but this is not, as you're hoping, a cry of faith. How come? Their sarcasm gives them away. Verse 11, they said to Moses, is it, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you when we were in Egypt? It would be better to stay here than to have to go out there. Both Pharaoh and the Hebrews misinterpret the situation. Because they both ignore the main character of life circumstances. They ignore God. They ignore his place in the events before their eyes. Pharaoh said, we did this and now we have to fix it. And somewhere in the back of his mind, he thinks, yes, Yahweh was powerful over here in our capital cities. He has no power. He has no authority over there. And so it is pride. And he still will not relinquish the idea that he owns these people. And the Hebrew people stand in the wilderness and they look at Moses and they say, Moses, you did this and we're doomed. And death is worse than slavery. They both misinterpret their circumstances because they both ignore God. Which reminds us that there are at least two ways to ignore the Lord in our own lives. By pride or by fear. Pride says, God, you do not have authority over that spot out there. He doesn't reign or rule over how I treat my employees He doesn't reign or rule over my attitude toward the cashier. He doesn't speak into my business practices or my politics. He doesn't have authority over the bitter spots in my heart or the selfish motives that I live by. It's pride. On the other hand, fear begins with this. Someone has wronged me. Someone else has dragged me into these horrible circumstances, and I never would have chosen these for myself. And now fear says, someone else has to rescue me out of here. No one can. I'm doomed. Listen to Moses. Verse 13, he says, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord is the main character. Moses says, why don't you step back out of center stage and wait upon the Lord to appear on the stage of history and transform the whole event? I wonder if you are ignoring God in this season of your own life either by pride or by fear? Are you wrongly thinking that you are the main character of your own life? Then lift up your eyes and see the God of glory in every situation and notice that Jesus is the main character. And now I just simply ask you to follow the camera lens as we zoom above the proverbial rock and a hard place and ask this question, Who is about to snare whom? God has set a trap for Pharaoh. And if you know the way this story unfolds, you are beginning to get a sense of excitement as the tension builds. Because in the moment, the defeat of God and his people appears imminent, and the evil one is chasing, and he's just about to re enslave God's people, and the snare is perfectly set. Which is exactly what happened at the cross. When the evil one pursued God's true son, not Israel, but Jesus, and he brings him to hang in between the proverbial rock and a hard place, he could call down legions of angels to deliver him, or he could die and rescue and redeem sinners in the midst of his own anguish and sorrow. And right as God's Son appears to be pinned down at the cross, stuck between a rock and a hard place, who has snared whom? With a smile on his face, Satan walks right into the trap. Jesus, your Passover lamb, was sacrificed to atone for the sins of people like you and me people who would have happily run back to Egypt and, and be willing to be re except that God was willing to sit himself in the rock and hard place. More than that, Christ rose from the grave so that death and hell itself can no longer chase after and snare any of God's adopted sons and daughters ever again. Isn't the crucifixion and the resurrection the ultimate reminder that God always knows precisely what he's doing in every circumstance? Even when it looks like you are stuck, he knows what he's doing. He's faithful to you. He'll be present with you, and he will bring glory out of it. Only do not ignore the Lord. Do not ignore the one who is the main character of your life. Put away your own pride and your fear and look to him with reverence and trust. Every circumstance you face offers the potential to build your faith. Let's pray.